of Revelation, I'm going to read from a different translation this morning, the Geneva Bible. Revelation chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse 9, and I will actually go to the end of the chapter, one of those rare occasions where I'm going to end up preaching more than I had originally planned. It doesn't happen often, but I believe this section ought to come together as we see the glorious picture of the bride of Christ, the city of God that is coming to earth. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, And he showed me that great city, that holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her shining was like unto a stone most precious, as a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a great wall and high and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written are the twelve tribes of the children of Israel." On the east part, there were three gates, and on the north side, three gates, on the south side, three gates, and on the west side, three gates. And the wall of the city have twelve, had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the Lamb's twelve apostles. And he walked with me, and had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lay four square. And the length is as large as the breadth of it. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof 144 cubits. By the measure of man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was jasper. And the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second of its sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth of an emerald, the fifth of a sardonyx, the sixth of sardius, the seventh of chrysolite, the eighth of beryl, the ninth of topaz, the tenth of chrysophase, the eleventh of jacinth, the twelfth, and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every gate is of one pearl. And the street of the city is pure gold as shining glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And their city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did not the glory of God did light it, and the Lamb is the light of it. And the people which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the king of the earth shall bring their glory and honor unto it, and the gates of it shall not be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. And the glory and honor of the Gentiles shall be brought unto it, and there shall enter into it no unclean thing, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or lies, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you, and we would ask 
that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. We pray this, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Revelation continues to get better. In terms of the beauty and the glory of the kingdom that is revealed unto those who have been elect and sealed by the Father, given to the Son, and are so called the Bride of Christ, the days of judgment are over. Those are done. And in this way, we can see much of what we find in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 to be chronologically related to what has come before. Christ has come in judgment to destroy the old Jerusalem, the harlot, the wayward bride, the one who killed the prophets, denied the Messiah, cried out for his death, and rejected his salvation. And in rejecting his salvation, they in turn were rejected by the Messiah and have been destroyed. And so to all who are named not for Christ but for the beast, those who are not elect but are reprobate, eternally devoted to destruction, all of that has happened. And so in Revelation 21 we see the glorious city of God descending out of heaven to earth. And the manifestation of it, John sees a city unlike the city he saw destroyed. A city of glory, of beauty, of righteousness. A city that is covenantally named and united to the Godhead. And here... Much like we see in the book of Psalms when we are invited to go and behold the ramparts and the walls and the beauty of the city of God, we find an even clearer, holier, purer picture of the city that is united to Christ Jesus. And John takes us on a tour of a glorious city that human language can scarcely explain. And describe, yet there is much here to glean. Three points then that I want to make this morning as it relates to the city of God. The first, a view from the mountain. The second, a tour of the magnificent city. And then thirdly, a city without fault. A city without fault. Firstly, a view from the mountain. The beginning of this section that begins in verse 9. The same angel that we see in Revelation 17 that led John to see the destruction of the old Jerusalem now takes him to see from a high place, not a place of wilderness, but a place where he might see the panorama, the vista of the whole city up into a high mountain. And here he is carried up on the Lord's day to see this great heavenly city. And there came, verse 9, unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me, saying, Come, I will show thee the bride of the Lamb's wife. Verse 10, 
He carried me away in the spirit. This is a dream. John beholds something that is not unlike what Jacob saw in Genesis 28. When through God's magnificent revelation, there is a tearing between what is seen and what is unseen. We see this tearing when Christ is baptized at the Jordan and the Spirit comes down. The sky is torn. The Greek word is schizo. This tearing out of which the Spirit descends upon Christ and the Father speaks from that realm of the unseen into the realm of the seen and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. There are a number of these revelations in Scripture, and it shows the intimacy of the relationship between the realm of the seen and the unseen. And here, John is in a dream on the Lord's day, taken away by the Spirit and given a revelation from a high mountain of the holy Jerusalem. The building project is done. I can't wait. Right? In fact, it is a city so magnificent, it does not require the laying of asphalt, but its streets are of gold. Now, that is some kind of capital campaign project right there. It'd be hard to see to pull in on a sunny day, wouldn't it? Blinded by the parking lot. But here there is this city, and John sees it, and it is a city that is coming down. Now, I have already said that this city is the representation, the manifestation of the new heavens and the new earth, and that the new heavens and the new earth are now in their inauguration. They have begun. Christ's reign has begun on earth, yet it is not fully come. It is now, but not yet fully revealed. And so there are elements of the consummated, full new heavens and new earth that we see today. The regeneration of a human soul is a heavenly reality that is breaking forth unto this fallen world. And we will see more and more and more and more of it because of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. We will find through history into the future, a greater expansion, not only of the number of the saints, but the acceleration by which the kingdom of Christ grows. Such that the Bible says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind comprehended what God has in store for us. This is how we live oftentimes. With the blinders of our environment being far more dominant in the way we look at the world than what God has said in his word. This is why Israel did not go into the, the, into the promised land. Why? Because there were giants in the land. In fact, when David went to Goliath, he's looking at all of Israel and they say, he's too big. And David shamed even the king of Israel because David was not thinking, oh man, David is so big, how can he be defeated? But he's so big, I don't think I can miss. 
And he drove that rock right into the giant's forehead and took the giant's own sword. Is this not the way the evil man always falls? By their own weapons? You just need to live long enough to sort of delight in the irony of the destruction of it all. And have we not opened the word and seen it? That the ones whom Satan used to put Christ to death not only were not successful in their campaign to defeat the anointed one of Israel, Jesus the Messiah, for though every anointed man had failed, Samson, David, Samuel, and the kings and prophets before, all types and signs of the one who would come, except the God-man rose on the third day, and not only did he put to shame the plot of Satan, but he also came in vengeance against those who put him to death. And now he comes in full glory with his people because he has brought a city that no city of man, no power of men can contend against because it is a city not from men. It is not built from the ground up. It is coming from heaven to earth. This is what Jacob saw in Genesis 28. This tower that connected heaven and earth upon which angels ascended and descended. And then in John 1, when Christ comes to earth, he says, it is upon me that angels ascend and descend. The city is God, the temple. The city is the people. Where do the people end in God? It, it is impossible to understand the beginning and the end of the infinite, immortal, imperishable, innocent fellowship of what we find happening in Revelation 21. There is no city on earth like this because it is a city full of God's glory. She is dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And even now, dear saints, we ought to be preparing for what we will be doing then. To rest. Now, rest is not inactivity. And those of you who endeavor to rest on the Lord's Day know this well, that Sunday has almost no rest, especially if God calls you and gifts you with the ability to have covenant children. Right? It's labor. But it is the kind of labor that brings forth fruit. Last Sunday I was talking with someone about fruit trees. And the work that is involved. Grocery stores are, well, they're a lie <laughs> as to how the things you eat come to your table. The waxy fruits, oftentimes coated in wax for marketing value, fruits that are far removed from the very places from which they came and were nurtured and harvested. These apple trees that some of you go and pick, although I know the reason you go to the orchards is not for the apples. It's because everyone sells those apple cider donuts. That's why we go. We don't go for the fruit. We go for the donut. <laughs> but every one of those trees lived a long time 
and had to be trained and pruned and carefully nurtured until they could bear not just fruit, but fruit fit to eat. This is much like our children. There's a lot of snipping. There's a lot of pruning. There's a lot of watering. There's a lot of feeding. And at the end of all of this, our hope as we give them to the Lord is that they, like we, might bear fruit. I'm getting around to saying it this way. Worship is the primary place where we are dressed. Now, why worship? Because the worship of the saints is the closest thing we have on earth as an approximation to and given to us by God as to what it will look like when we live together in this city. Now, we can come and we can move in and we can live in an area, and that's the way it ought to be, some sort of daily, regular proximity. But there is nothing like the proximity of covenant worship. And this morning when I exhorted you and asked you, children in particular, were you excited to come to church today? Your level of excitement and enthusiasm is always related to what? What you think the value of the thing is that you're doing. I have never had to force feed my children cookies, ever. Not one time. Now listen, you're going to clear that plate of cookies, and I don't care if you don't want to. No, it's always what? What is green that comes from the garden? Which is kind of funny. Why are all the vegetables that we're supposed to eat terrible? You have to practice to like them. Or you just cover them like we do here with cheese and butter and salt. No one ever has to say, now I want you to put more butter on that roll. Worship is that place in which we come to and we understand that that's where the butter comes from. That's where the great rich feasting day is and the degree to which we participate in glorying in the city of God made up of all kinds of people. And every time a new family comes, guess what happens? There is a, a rumbling, a shift in the culture and the feel of the body, isn't there? As a new group comes in, we say, all right, here are our distinctives. This is what we are about. We are about getting ready for the day of Christ's coming. But we're not like those guys that go into the park and drink Kool-Aid and wait for God to come on some sort of spacecraft, the way in which we prepare for the day of Christ's coming is to build a city fit for his reception. And it begins here. And this view from the mountain that John sees is incredibly important to us because it is our home. And it is unlike any other. And the reason why these seven churches in Revelation, needed to see this is because this was not a reality that was clear to them in the midst of their suffering under the hands of Roman persecution. Right now, despite all of the liberties that we enjoy, right? Every day in our homes, there is power running to them. And I can just see it. Husbands and wives are talking. Children are going about their daily lives. They go from one streaming network to another. 
You go to the fridge and it actually makes ice. And you turn to your wife or your children and say, things are really going badly. What? Look at what Christ is doing. Do you know what they will have in the new heavens and the new earth? I would imagine they have indoor plumbing. And where does that come from? All of the glorious things that have been done for the sake of the good of God's people. This isn't a a return back to the days of prairie life. This simplicity is not in the lack of things available other than what? It is the simplicity that righteousness brings. That holiness brings. That a lack of fear and tears and sorrow brings. Because as we see at the end of this chapter, it will be a city in which there will be no working sin. No abomination. No Satan coming to accuse or tempt to lure us out of that glorious dwelling place of God with men. It is a city unlike any other, and it is a city more glorious than any city you've ever seen, and more beautiful than anything you've ever seen in creation. It is that glorious city of God. And then that brings us then to the tour. Here, John sees what is happening and what the city looks like, beginning in verse 11. We see that this city has the glory of God. Her shining was like a stone most precious, as a jasper stone clear as crystal. Now, jasper is is, is not clear at all. It's a cloudy, solid stone. And like gold, of which we'll read in a moment, which is also not clear, there's something about the way in which John describes this that goes beyond human description. We see a wall here. We see gates We see tribes, we see apostles. And these here, first described, are the walls and the gates. There are high walls, verse 12, and there are 12 gates. On the north, south, east, and west side, each, four sides of the compass, there are three gates, making up a total of 12 And these walls had a foundation in which the names of the apostles have been carved. And then he takes John to measure this great city. And there are greater details given. But let's first look at some of these ideas or the the symbolism here and what it might stand for. First, God builds his city with human stones. And that the gates and the foundations are not distinct from one another as it relates to the expression of God's covenant faithfulness. Here where we see the walls and the gates whose names are the 12 tribes of Israel. They are intimately, architecturally, covenantally connected to the foundations that is the apostles. What is interesting is that it is the gospel given to the apostles that is the foundation for the tribes. Which means what? This is no dispensationalist city. 
This is a city that can only be understood and defined in terms of covenant theology. What I mean by that is this, that the same plan of salvation that is the proclamation of the Messiah through the person and work of Jesus Christ is the very same gospel by which the Old Testament saints were saved through because they believe in the promise of the Messiah. They were not saved by works. They were not saved through the sacrifices. They were saved by faith like Abraham, looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. The foundation is the gospel of Christ. And thousands of years, ever before Christ came, Abraham believed that gospel and he was saved. And so were his sons and his sons' sons. And so were all who were children of Abraham. The whole city is built upon that glorious proclamation of Christ is Lord. There is no other foundation. And there is no other holy city. This also puts to death any concept of universal salvation. Because the only means by which you may enter into the city, where the gates remain open, is through the proclamation of the one that protects that city. This is what Christ means when he says, I am the door, I am the way. You can't go over the wall, you must go through the door. We must enter through the name of Christ. And so here, the saints in the Old and New Testament are not distinct from one another. They are all one people in Christ Jesus. And so when we say patriarchs or the fathers, we need to think of them as our fathers in the faith, though they are long removed from us. We must not be ahistorical. We must be covenantal. And then the city is shown to be immense in size as John begins to measure it in verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. He has given a sanctified measuring tape. And he goes and he expresses the vast enormity of this place that is so enormous that it can hold all of the saints. Now, There are men who have done a lot of interesting mathematical work in terms of laying out just how big this city might be, how many people might be in it, the limits of what John means literally when he expresses the, the boundaries and the size of this city, how much of it is symbolic. For now, this is what I will say. The expression here of John is both symbolic in part and literal in part. It is a real city, real people live in it, and we will not be unseen, immaterial beings in our glorified state. There will be real roads, there will be real gates, and all of these things John is attempting to describe with real human language that is limited when describing and not up to the task fully what he actually sees. An example of this might be, parents, when you read one of your kids' papers and you go, guys, there's more than 15 words in the English language. Choose a new word. Get a thesaurus. Learn something. The black cat walked on the hot roof. Well, how do we make that come alive? Well, John is attempting 
to make it come alive. And he has given inspiration. This is the authoritative word of God, but there is a lot of it was like this, or it appeared to be this way. And the gates each have these jewels. Look at verse 18. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto glass. Now, we'll go to those things in a moment, but first I want to talk about the jewels. The foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Now, these precious stones are those stones that might be best described as possessing radiant light, uncompromised glory, and beautiful color. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, there is a place in which we find the gemstones that represent the tribes of Israel. Do you remember where they were located? The breastplate of the high priest. And the high priest, once a year, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, bore the stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel into that most holy place. Who is our high priest? Who is the one who brings Israel into the presence of God? It is Christ who is ultimately pictured in bringing all the saints of God before the throne. In fact, there is a psalm that we'll sing this evening that is composed to the same tune, a beautiful hymn written by Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul. And in that hymn he writes, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Have you ever wondered why the scripture speaks of our being brought to the bosom, the chest, the heart of our Redeemer? Because it has built into it this idea, this Glorious picture of the high priest bearing the names of the tribes near to the heart of the one who offers us and brings us into the holy presence of God. Now, the Old Testament priest would not have really understood the significance of this. How could he? So long before the coming of Christ, but God did and does. And as we will soon see, this city that is measured to be a cube, equal sides on all three, is a larger, more glorious, more full holy of holies. And so it makes sense that the very foundation of her walls is filled with those stones that represent the people of God. Now what of the pearl, this Gate that seems to be carved from a large pearl. The pearl is that precious jewel that represents suffering and pain. Elsewhere, the scriptures speak of the narrowness of the way that leads to life, and that there are many who will suffer for the name of Christ. 
It is not an easy path to trod. And the narrowness in the scriptures does not speak to the tiny number of people who arrive. In fact, the only reason you arrive ever, the only reason why you or I ever arrive in that city is because of the grace and mercy of God. In fact, there would be none who walked that path. But here there is an enormous number of gates. When one asks Christ in the Gospels, what must, it, or what must I do or what is involved in discipleship, Christ says you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The path of faithfulness to the Lord requires dying to self and taking up one's cross. But despite all of this suffering, the glory that awaits those who suffer is shown in the entryway into the city. And so we do not look at suffering in this world and say, there is something I must do to be relieved of this. But rather, to what degree will God call me into his holy city and reveals to me, even in my suffering, the glory of what is in store? And each of those gates named for the patriarchs. Not only that, but we see the golden streets. It is clear gold. Perhaps perfectly refined gold. Gold that is in an interesting way no longer possessing of any impurity whatsoever. Gold which reflects the glory and presence of God. That everywhere God walks among us, even the streets. Who thinks of streets aside from you engineers? Well, God does. And even the streets of that great city radiate his glory. I think of Moses as he came near to the presence of God at the burning bush. And God said to him, take off your shoes for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. Everywhere we go is holy ground. Why? Because there is nowhere you can go in that city that is not immediately and fully filled with the presence of God. Such that we can say here in closing... That it is a city without fault. It is a city without need for temple. Why? I want you to hear this. The mission and work of Reformation OPC is to work ourselves so that we no longer need a building for worship. And every building project that we do here should speak not only of the impermanence of our lives on earth, but also the transcendent nature of our worship. And God will bring to us a holier sanctuary. Every time we do the Lord's Supper, there's a place down here where I walk and it squeaks. And I have this tendency to want to find it every time. Because it reminds me. The holy city, a more permanent tabernacle is coming. The squeak is good. Because the squeak reminds us of what? that we are looking forward to something even greater. G.K. Beale in his commentary writes, the Solomonic temple, the temple that Solomon built, the second temple before Herod, and the temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48 were divided by a wall into an inner and outer court. In contrast, there will be only one wall in the New Jerusalem. And it will be surrounded, or it will surround the entire city, thus stressing the unity of the city inhabitants with one another and with God. It will be one great big holy of holies. 
And whereas it was one year, or one man once a year, that would represent the whole nation before God, we speak of ourselves as the priesthood of believers. And not just the highborn and the lowborn, but everyone in between. In fact, John here, after turning from a description, speaks of a city without fault because she is the place in which God dwells where there will be no more sin and even there in that city there will be former kings. Kings of earth. Kings with great power. Verse 24, and the people which are saved shall walk in the light. There will be no more, or rather, there shall be no need for sun or moon. This is not an argument that there will be no sun or moon, but that the city of God will, through the triune Lord, produce its own light, and we will walk in the glory of it. And though there are walls and gates, the reason why the gates will never be closed, verse 25, is there's nothing to protect us from. There is no threat to peace. There is no threat to shalom. There is no threat to comfort. People will come in and they will go out. This bustling city of men and women made righteous in holiness, perfected, glorified for all eternity, will live with God in peace. There will be no serpent. There will be no threat. Verse 26. And the glory and honor of the Gentiles shall be brought into it. It is a kingdom that will come when the fullness of the number are brought in. And due to its size, I would say this. There are many who remain to be brought in. And for those who delight in mercy, praise be to God. Because to every child born of a man and a woman, even to those who are outside of the church, there is a mission field even now that continues to grow. And Christ has said to us, I see the world, it is white unto harvest. And there are those throughout the world that will be brought in, and every generation that will be brought into this city Named not for the nations to which they belong now, but named for the one who will bring them in by grace. And here, dear saints, is our great hope. That at the end of our lives, at the end of our sleep in death, whenever Christ comes to gather us to himself, the state into which we will awaken and be raised is a state that will never change. I just That is good and glorious news. And so if you are struggling even in the work of growing in grace as an individual, remember the city that is coming. There is no city like it. Why would you seek citizenship in any other city? And to those who are called to be ambassadors of this city, here is the message. Enter while there is room. 
enter while there is time. The gates are open. And as Christ would say, I do not cast anyone off that comes to me. Let us call the nations to Christ. Let me pray.